Here comes another edition of Talking Foosball Direct, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman. This week, I'd say we're full of enthusiasm for this league, the Bundesliga. Its results have simply conspired to keep the top of the table tight as can be. This is still kind of an unfamiliar feeling, as you know. With me this week to share in these good feelings is a tip-top guest. It is Marie Schulte-Balkum. Hey, hey. Hi, Matt. Hi, I'm excited to be on the show again. I think I've lost count on how many times we've talked about the Bundesliga together. That's a good sign, right? <laughs> a very good sign. And I, I think you're right. It has never been this surprising and close at the top of the table. So really excited to dig into that. Oh, yeah. There's like practically half the league <laughs> or two games away from, you know, climbing up to the top, depending on how things turn out. Yeah, things are topsy-turvy, if you hadn't noticed, folks. We're going to be right back to run you through all of the best and the rest of Match Day 9. In the meantime, please do subscribe to this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating, please. It really helps us get the word out about the pod to new listeners, if, if you're wondering why. And if you really like us, become a supporter on Patreon. we got lots and lots of timeless content over there for you to check out. Dig into the archives. We also have uh, historic match day moments editions coming out each match day all season long. See you in a moment. Here comes part one of Talking Foosball Direct, the part where we give you the best of the match day just gone. This was match day nine. Before we get started, just one quick reminder. If you get yourself onto Patreon within the next few weeks prior to the World Cup break, you will have a chance to help control our agenda during the World Cup break. We'll be recording a few special sort of off-the-beaten-path episodes, so do look out for that and do consider signing up. Anyway. Yeah, a lot was going on this weekend in the Bundesliga, you could say. We had one colossal fixture, the one that the Bundesliga likes to call Der Klassiker. And sometimes we chuckle about that. Sometimes we grumble about that. And sometimes we're just like, damn, <laughs> what a good game. Oh, my God, this one delivered after seven straight League wins for FC Bayern over Borussia Dortmund. That's basically a four-year stretch full of results that were not all that close in, in many cases. Boy, did we get a live one this time out. It looked for maybe the first hour and change like it might be another resounding Bayern win, but things changed. Leon Goretzka and Leroy Sané had scored on either side of halftime, but after... After Anthony Modest, who had been, of course, dropped to the bench for this one, came in for Borussia Dortmund, things did change. He set up Yusuf Mokoko for the first goal to get back in the contest. He famously scored an equalizer deep into injury time, setting off insane jubilation at the Westfalen Stadion. Marie, I want to talk about other aspects of this big game in just a minute, but I think we should probably start with Monsieur Modest. He's been kind of an odd man out for the Schwarzgelben this season, but he was the key man in this game. What made it work this time? Oh, yeah. I mean, he. this is the game. I mean, it's hard to say. You know, I saw all these memes online that in the 83rd minute, you know, he had missed that absolute blinder of the chance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was an absolute tap-in. Things could have gone another way very easily. He could have very easily been the scapegoat yet again. And there are these memes of everyone in the 83rd minute being like, oh, worst purchase ever. He's useless. Never let play him again. And then like 95th minute, you know, of injury time. So the fifth minute of injury time, you know, like Tony, Tony, Anthony Modest. <laughs> so it's tough to, I think I'm going to try and stay neutral and not make this for him bigger than it was. But I think it was very moving to see him hug the coach, Edin Terzic, after. And something that was interesting, he did say on German TV with Sky, the German stream right holders for the Saturday games, that he had requested from his teammates or demanded from his teammates in midweek in training that they play more crosses to basically feed him. And we saw that, you know, after he came on, players, especially Adeyemi on the right, and then, of course, in the scene where he did score with Schlotterbeck, did try those high balls in from the sides to feed Anthony Modest, and it worked. So I think 
it speaks for the health and maybe the chemistry of the squad that Anthony Modest, who after all only just arrived in the locker room at Dortmund, is able to voice <laughs> demands like that and have them answered. And I do want to say ahead of the first goal that, yes, Anthony Modest on paper gets the assist there, but really that was a goal that was brilliantly set up by Mukoku himself, who kind of played that ball in from midfield in onto Anthony Modest, who secured it in the box and then allowed Mukoku to sprint in, get into position, and then have the ball returned to him. So I think Mukoku also did very well in this game to show that he's deserving of, of starting. And something that will be interesting moving forward is if Terzic, you know, also, of course, he has midweek games in Europe, if he ever plays with a two up front at the beginning in the starting lineup, that would be something to look out for, I think. Yeah, I thought it was a very interesting choice that when Aiden Terzic decided to introduce Antony Modest, he didn't take off Makoko, he took off uh, Donya Maland, who, you know, Obviously, a lot of these players, other than Modeste, are a bit more tactically flexible or more used to playing on the wing when they have to and in the middle when they have to. But, you know, opening up that door that you just mentioned of, you know, creating an understanding between two strikers that can sometimes, depending on what your opponent is up to, you know, their level of fatigue or how many backs they're playing or whatever, can be super decisive. I mean, we were talking last week when I had Adam Kahn on about the success of two striker systems this year in the Bundesliga that Bremen and Union have had. And obviously those teams play very differently from Dortmund, but there might be something to the idea. I mean, Eden Terzic, I, I was watching a different interview. I was watching one that Terzic was doing with, uh, you know, our mutual friend, Archie Rintut. And he mentioned that during the week of training, he emphasized to the forwards in the squad that they need to spread the wealth, that he had seen too many instances of players going for goal when teammates were better positioned. And, you know, that first goal for Makoko, after he had fed Modest, Modest who had, of course, not scored in a little while and not looked very good for Dortmund for the most part, could have tried to force his way toward a shot, but did spread that wealth. And if they can sort of build on that moving forward, I think that could be a very interesting wrinkle for the remainder of the season. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, good observation. And I agree that Modest maybe in another season and in another jersey at Cologne would not have played that pass um, to Mokoku and would have gone for a goal himself. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, I think for my money, the person who's actually been most guilty of that has been Makoko because he has been the one who's been starved of time on the pitch for the most part. And it feels like in late game situations when he comes on, he's just like, I'm shooting. I am <laughs> shooting. I am shooting. So, you know, maybe that's neither here nor there. Okay. So this result clearly means a lot, not just for Dortmund in terms of getting their sort of marquee striker, at least uh, until Sebastian Allaire gets healthy, into form, into giving him a feeling of being central to this team, which has really been missing thus far. But it's got to be a really deflating result for FC Bayern. I mean, this was a team that has, has really weathered a lot of storms already this season, but had gotten back on track last week with a big, big win over Leverkusen. And I just feel like there's been a lot of discontent recently. I mean, Oliver Kahn, clearly, I think we all saw on, on Twitter and elsewhere, him flipping his lid in the stands when Dortmund's second went in. He seemed to have a pretty good sense of humor about it himself. But after the game said something to the effect of he could hardly remember a season in which Bayern had left so many chances wasted or let so many points slip away in the final phases of games so frequently. I mean, what do you make of their situation at the moment? They have, I, th I think they're home to Freiburg next weekend yep. after a game against Pilsen. I mean, I, I think it's difficult because there's a difference between the season so far and the Dortmund game. Sure. In the Dortmund game, I actually don't think that Bayern was that dominant. They didn't have that many clear-cut chances. So it's not like if we compare it, for example, to their, uh, which was also a tie to their game against Gladbach, where Jan Sommer had the game of the century, and otherwise, you know, Bayern would have won 5-1, but it was a 1-1 tie. In this game, the teams were even, and Dortmund was able to 
kind of keep Bayern away from their own goal for most of the time. And so I think in this game, it was more a matter of defending than attacking that led to them not, you know, rubbing the three points and taking them to Munich. And I think partly Nagelsmann, you know, we do have to look at him here because the back four was completely torn apart in the end phase. And that was also, you know, those 20 minutes where Dortmund really grew, where the, the stadium kind of erupted and, and where they scored the two goals. De Ligt was subbed off. Apparently that was because of an injury, but obviously that doesn't help. Then Pavard had to move from fullback to centre-back. Masraoui came on. The only member of the back four that finished the game was Upamecano. And, of course, Davis had to go off at the end of the first half as well with that terrible injury and the collision, if we want to call it that, with Jude Bellingham. But it, it just seems like they don't have a solid starting eleven right now. And some of that is not, you know, it's not anyone's fault. You know, there were the COVID cases that have affected pretty much the whole spine of Bayern Munich, at least last season's spine of Manuel Neuer and Goretzka first, and then Kimmich and Müller, you know, like how unlucky can you get with those four players out? And I think especially we also have to look at the center of the park. For the last season, there was this clear, clear couple there of Kimmich and, and Goretzka and you know, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse that Zabitza has performed so, so well this year, but there's been so much rotation in these last few games about who plays in that pivot role that I think the the team lacks a bit of stability defensively. Hmm. Yeah, I think there there is something to that. I want to dig in for a moment about the um, so-called collision that you mentioned <laughs> earlier. This was one that, that I think caused a lot of consternation among Bayern fans, or at least a, a feeling of being hard done by. Basically, Jude Bellingham was going, you know, had, had sort of put one touch on a ball and it had popped up on him. He had sought to, you know, make contact with the ball with his foot. Alfonso Davies lowered his head slightly, although, you know, not to an extent that it would, would ever be a, a foul called on him. And he got kicked in the face. Let's Let's be honest about this. Did it make sense to you that this was not not something that was sanctioned a little more strongly? I mean, there there were people calling for a straight red of the, on this. No, it did not make sense to me. And actually, I heard Eitekin's explanation uh, after the game, and then today again when he appeared in the German live talk show Doppelpass. Mm-hmm. And first of all, I think it's he's. I mean, he's a fantastic referee, probably the best that Germany has, and it speaks to his character that. He faced the criticism straight away uh, after the game. And then even the next morning when everyone was still kind of mad, you know, we saw Oliver Kahn's tweets, but he was just wrong here. And I think, you know, he, he talked this morning in the show, he, he talked a lot about empathy and getting a sense of the game and about intent. But, you know, there's no such rule. There's nothing for intent, you know, otherwise what would we do with the handball rule in, in the, in the box? You know, I, I doubt many players intend to, you know, have the ball hit their arm. In this case, I mean, this was, I, I kind of understand Nagelsmann. This this was a clear card and probably a red, honestly. You know, high boot, dangerous play into the face. I don't, and I, I mean, I'm pretty sure Bellingham did not want to hurt Davis because he hardly saw him. Yeah. You know, it was mid-movement. He was trying to to kind of, you know, bounce the ball on his foot three times and and kind of lift it over Davis. And he hit Davis. But again, it's it's not a matter of intent. It's a matter of what actually happens. And I, I was just stunned. And I think if, if Bellingham, you know, hadn't had that yellow card early on, then this would have been a yellow or red. And, you know, hence he would have been sent off and, that's also kind of what Eitekin said. He was like, oh, I gave him kind of a soft yellow. And then I'm like, okay, but that was your decision for the referee. So I think he perhaps didn't want a decision that would influence the game so early on because this was just before the ha- halftime. So, you know, Dortmund would have been with 10 men for half of a game against Bayern Munich, which obviously would have had a huge impact on the game. But 
you know, I, I think maybe that's playing God a bit to say, oh, I don't want to affect the game too much. It's hard for the players to understand where the line is if we're, you know, starting to give sympathy points to different players. Yeah, it, it's funny because I feel like what Dennis Aitken and some of the other better referees have long been known for is that sort of feel for game situations, ability to defuse situations with something other than cards, you know, maintain dialogue with players. And I feel like that kind of got him into some trouble at this time. I mean, early in the game, when he was looking to sort of keep the game at a moderate temperature, he, you know, gave out a couple of yellow cards first to Delict and then to Bellingham. And the Bellingham one, I think, was very soft and was one that didn't need to be given. And maybe that was on his mind, as I think you mentioned he said on Double Pass. You know, because this was obviously... <laughs> It was a kick to the face. And, you know, Davies had his head in a totally sensible, playable situation, not a not not one of those situations where someone, you know, goes way down for a ball and sort of does that at their own risk. It's not really defensible to not give a yellow card for that. And once you've already given out one yellow card, you got to live with the consequences of what happens when you give out a second. And I can't imagine if if I were a Bayern fan, I wouldn't be very, very unhappy about it. Yeah, exactly. So it's a shame that that kind of overshadows a lot of the other plot lines of this game. And I, I do feel bad, you know, I mean, I don't feel bad. I feel very happy for Bellingham that he didn't get sent off. But I think we can all agree that, you know, knowing Jude Bellingham, that there was absolutely no... Um, you know, intent on his behalf. And he has apologized to Davis on social media. We now know that Davis will be okay. He's, you know, he's out of training today, but it wasn't a concussion. It was a, what did they call it? A hit to the skull or something? They called it a, I think a skull bruise or something skull along bruise. those lines. I, yeah. Know, I don't know enough about head injuries to know what distinction we're, we're dealing with there. But yeah. Apparently it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound comfortable either way. No. <laughs> I'm sure I, I wouldn't want to have a skull bruise, but I guess this is all things considered. This was, this was kind of luck. So he'll, he'll be back. And I know that Canadian football fans were also going crazy on Twitter, fearing, you know, any repercussions for the World Cup. So all in all, I think we can kind of, you know, breathe a, a sigh of relief there. For sure, for sure. I You really feel for players who pick up significant injuries in this last month and a half before the World Cup because, you know, for anybody who had that penciled into their, their schedule, it's going to be a very, very painful thing to cross off uh, the calendar. Okay, let's take a little bit of a bigger view for just a moment. We've talked about this game for quite some time, but, you know, hey, Mr. Klassiker, how good for the Bundesliga is it? to not only have a competitive classicer and one with a, a very, you know, thrilling finale, let's just say, but a competitive title race, a situation where you have as many as five, six, seven teams who are sort of in the thick of things for Europe and even the top of the league. I'm feeling more positive about the sort of health of this league than I have in some time. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm really impressed and really excited by the top of the table and I think this is also a signal to two other teams, you know, that rebuilding, you know, for the long term, building with stability and consistency can yield results and can yield growth. And I mean, we also saw that today, um, not to turn to, you know, the, to England too often, but, you know, Arsenal beating Liverpool, they, they've held on to Mikel Ateta through a bunch of crises and, that's a, it's a world club with a lot of pressure from fans and they've missed Europe and now they're top of the league because it's just a project that was able to grow slowly and kind of safely. And the same thing can be said for Freiburg, for Union Berlin, for Werder Bremen, you know, who have all either held on to their coaches for a long time or to the core of their players and are now in the top five, which is Really very, very impressive. And I think for all three of those, they would definitely not be in the top five in terms of salaries. So, you know, they're really punching above their weight. And 
um, it's fantastic because I think, uh, like I said, it's an inspiration for other clubs to do good work and to maybe close the gap to the top. All right. Well, I think we all know that Dirk Klassiker, in terms of international impact, is the alpha and omega for the Bundesliga. But, you know, measured by purely tradition and maybe by passion, there was another game that was probably the pick of the litter this week. That was the Rhineland Derby between Borussia Mönchengladbach and Erste FC Köln. These two sets of fans are always well up for this one. But the fact that just one point separated these two teams on the table going into it made this edition extra spicy. Um, and I, I, I think those fans got a lot of entertainment value this Sunday. Seven goals in this one. Although I think the Foles fans were, were more entertained than those of the Billy Goats as uh, it was a 5-2 win for Borussia Mönchengladbach. This game took a pretty sharp turn just before halftime when Cologne's Florian Kainz got himself sent off for a second yellow. Another very consequential second yellow. He conceded a penalty in the process as well, which Rami Bensabaini scored. That was a, made it a 2-1 margin for Gladbach and really set a table for them to push forward in the second half. Marie, what, what did you make of this one? And, huh, th- I feel like this was a huge turnaround for Gladbach, considering they were absolutely put to the sword by Bremen last week. But then again, I feel like that's become a little bit their trademark is <laughs> ups and downs. Yeah, definitely. I think... Gladbach this season is benefiting hugely from not having those midweek games. And it really seems like Daniel Farker is is not, their coach is not a fan of rotation because it's very rare that he makes changes. And I think, you know, if you ever needed to look for a sign to make changes to your lineup, losing 3-0 to recently promoted Bremen might be such a sign. And he didn't. He completely trusted the same 11 and they, you know, paid it back in style. Ben Sibaini, in many ways, was the man of the match here and he had a terrible game against Bremen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dropped him from my fantasy team. <laughs> I, I'm the one with little oh, faith. No, yeah, there you go. So it, it, it just goes to show what maybe makes this such a, such a strong team that they're able to find the player next to them. And it's all about this muscle memory of knowing the pitch, knowing your teammates. And that really stuck out to me here. Of course, Kainz's card was a big turning point in the game because at that point it was still one all. Then the resulting penalty made it 2-1 for Gladbach. And then we know what happened in the end. It kind of just didn't stop the flow of, of goals. And it, it's really painful because Kainz is one of Cologne's most creative players and he's probably the most informed player they have this season. Yeah, he's been spectacular. He's been their best player this season. He has been. Yeah, he's he's been involved in seven goals already in the Bundesliga on nine match days. So that's hugely impressive. He even scored in this game before he was sent off. So that's really got to hurt. And then, of course, you know, it, it's just, it's always tough to lose so badly against your local rival. And I think talking about rotation again, You know, on the other hand, we have Cologne and they had five or six changes from their midweek game, which they also lost. So it's tough. It hasn't been a very happy week for the Billy Goats. Yeah, but um, luckily for them, or maybe unluckily, considering how well they handled this English week, they've only got like, you know, four more ahead of them before the World Cup break. So there's plenty of time to turn things around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, let's move on and uh, and talk about a game that I think you probably might still be smarting from slightly. That was uh, Leverkusen's 4-0 win over Schalke. You know, Leverkusen, as we both know, were probably the biggest disappointment of the league thus far. They had racked up a meager five points from their first eight games and only won uh, a single game from three in the Champions League as well. After losing in Porto on Tuesday, the Bayer Brass decided they had seen enough. They uh, sent coach Gerardo Seawane packing. They installed the handsomest trilingual ex-footballer available, uh, Chabi Alonso, and the move paid off. It was a totally emphatic win for Leverkusen. Took them out of the relegation zone for the first time in ages. Let's talk about Schalke in a minute, Marie. Let's first talk about first game for Leverkusen under Xavi Alonso. What was different? What was better? This does not have to be an exhaustive list, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, 
the thing that I really noticed the most was how much contact he had with the players throughout the game. And the German commentator actually made the point because, you know, sometimes when you're in the stadium, you see things that we, you know, you know, we're limited by the view of the camera. But he made the point that in the first 12 minutes, Xavi Alonso sat on his bench for a total of one minute. <laughs> he was always in the coaching zone. Anytime there was a break in play, you know, a foul, um, a throw in even, a corner kick, he, he he kind of waved one of the Leverkusen players to him, gave instructions. It was very frequently Charles Arangis. It seems like uh, he's basically seen him as this guy who can take in everything he needs to let the team know and, and spread it through. I, I'm not surprised considering they you know share a native language, but it was they've clearly been speaking this week. Yeah, and it, it's always important to have kind of one player who's an extended arm of the coach on the pitch. You know, we see that at Bayern as well with Kimmich and Nagelsmann. And so be it. I mean, Arangis has has played a big role under pretty much every coach that Leverkusen has had. But, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but it will be interesting to see what happens to Demir Bay under Alonso because he was, of course, you know, he's been very informed lately, but he was on the bench in this game. But yes, yeah, so I think that was a huge difference. And then kind of pulling Frimpong back to defense so that he has that link up with Diaby on the right side. And that side, I mean, that flank was just incredible. You know, the power that they had. I think those two pretty much won this game for for Leverkusen, both on paper, but also actually within the 90 minutes. And yeah, so those are two of the things that I've picked out. And also, I mean, it's just, it gives you confidence, you know? Like, there was that picture of Alonso midweek where he's kind of standing in the stadium and and the top of the stadium is like the sky over him, and he looks like some kind of religious figure. Um, <laughs> but, you know, even if you're an international top player like Patrick Schick or Moussa Diaby, you know, who will both, I mean, Diaby will star in the World Cup for France, which is says everything pretty much about his skills. Having someone like that on the sidelines, you have a lot of awe and respect. He's won everything. He has literally he's won played, everything. <laughs> he has literally won everything, and he's played for Bayern Munich, uh, so he knows the league. And of course, you want to be kind of silent and listening to everything he says. And I think, I mean, it was obviously a grateful task for him to have the first game be a home game against Schalke. Um, I was kind of wondering after the Porto game if they would let Sion have that game or let him go. But really, the opportunity was too good to be missed because, you know... Unfortunately, Schalke is right now a very good team for whoever plays them <laughs> uh, to build up confidence. And that's exactly what we saw. Yep. For those who don't already know this uh, little German vocabulary word, Schalke are the Bundesliga's Aufbaugegner at the moment. At least, at least since Bochum got a win this weekend. Okay. Let's talk about the other side of the ball for a minute. Maybe since we just talked about Xabi Alonso and, and all the confidence and, and sort of uh, positive spotlight he can not only bring to this team in terms of media and sort of respect, but also within the squad, within the group of players who just want to learn something from somebody this big. You know, the guy on the other side, Frank Kama, underwhelming appointment. When he was brought in, let's just say, certainly I know that um, many a Schalke fan were kind of perturbed and not all that psyched when he came in. Doesn't exactly give the kind of confidence, even in the same zip code, as someone like Javi Alonso. I hate to reduce this just to a comparison of two coaches because obviously there's a lot more going on here. But is this sort of just representative of – Schalke's mindset this season? I mean, I feel like they came into the season to try and tread water at a low but not relegation level. And that kind of attitude, that kind of outset or that kind of mindset from the outset is just not cutting it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think a lot of this comes from the top. And, you know, first of all, as a little asterisk, we have to admit that no one expected Schalke to be promoted this year. Mm, you know, mm. um, they they way overperformed last season, and to their credit, that was a huge achievement with that team. Um, they went on that run in the second half of the season of eight wins in, in nine games, 
and and then they were promoted top of the league. And then unlike Bremen, who pretty much were like, okay, we're going to trust the guys that let us up, and they were able to keep the whole team pretty much in shape. Schalke was like, um, no, well, we signed all these players to perform in the second league and promote us, but they're not good enough for the Bundesliga anymore, so we're going to sign a bunch of new players. And that, on top of a new coach, I think was just too much, where sometimes these players really look lost, and especially players that did perform last year and were allowed to stay in the squad, like Ovejan, for example, or Terode, Bülter, Drexler, they're just not performing. And some of them are, I mean, Ovejan, for example, is unrecognizable. He was one of the best players in the second division last year. I think he had something ridiculous like 10 assists, and now he's not even in the first 11. And yeah, it's tough because I think there was always an expectation that they would be, you know, near the bottom of the table, but they had no clear chances at all. And that's got to hurt because um, that's not the expectation that that club can have. And yeah, I, I don't think it's only a coaching problem. I think a great coach could squeeze out a few more points, a few more goals, and then maybe Schalke would have 10 points now instead of six points. I think it's mainly a problem that, to put it bluntly, the team, the players, the material at hand is just not Bundesliga quality. And now that, that doesn't have to be a death sentence because we know that Bochum also overperformed last season and Stuttgart right now is hugely underperforming. So there are other teams that are also struggling and you only have to have two teams worse and then win you know, the relegation game to stay in, in the league. So I wouldn't say it's a thing of that's not possible, but it's really cool to watch. And I actually, I can't watch games, Schalke games for 90 minutes. So if they play during on Saturday, I watch the simulcast in Germany of where they flip from stadium to stadium because it's just, the football is just so bad that it's like, it hurts your eyes. Yeah. I don't see right now that there are two teams worse than Schalke, unfortunate uh, for, for you. Because, you know, looking looking at just the quality of play beyond uh, just results, Bochum is worse than Schalke, you know, leaving this weekend out. We'll get to them later. But just the performances that I've seen from other teams in the league, Schalke are the next worst team, I think, pretty pretty clearly to me. And unless that changes, I am pretty convinced that they're not going to stick around. Yeah, yeah, I think... You know, things short of a wonder, maybe they, they find some great... I mean, Ruben Schröder has, has done great work in finding players on little to no budget, two years running now, and, and maybe he'll unearth a gem in the winter window, you know, or Salazar will come back and have the same form he had last season. And, you know, there are some lights, you know, for example, I think Kraus in center midfield is having a very, very promising season. He's on loan from Leipzig. He said publicly that he grew up a Schalke fan and really strongly identifies with the club. He actually did that thing, which always makes us jerk a little bit out of our seat. But he kissed the, you know, the club emblem last weekend when he scored his first Bundesliga goal against Augsburg. And I'm trying to think of another second positive. But I <laughs> Just, uh, you know, the, the hope that Salazar will come back and kick ass. That's, that's enough. That's, hope is enough. Yeah, so I, I picked out Klaus as one good player. I would say maybe the efficiency of Drexler, mm, mm-hmm. you know, who's, who's, who's done very well in terms of assists and goals and in limited minutes. And then, of course, having Terodde. You know, you only need one month where Terodde scores every every weekend and you could be, you know, way, way up in the table. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think, they, like I said, I think they did exceptionally well to come up to the Bundesliga this year. And perhaps that was just not ready. All right. Well, let's leave it right there with uh, Schalke. That, that's somewhat down note. But uh, we'll be back with more encouraging news from other quarters in the Bundesliga. Here comes part two of Talking Foosball Direct. This is 
Matt Herman on the microphone here with Marie Schultebacum. Let's start now with, you know, part two, the rest of match day nine. That's the frame for what we're up to just now. Union Berlin, they are still top of the Bundesliga. They actually opened up a two-point lead after snatching a late win in Stuttgart. Paul Jekyll scored the game's only goal off of a set-piece Pretty deflating goal for the Stuttgart crowd who had, had seen their team play Union pretty tight up to then, had a very nice first half. Marie, we saw Union get their first Europa League win with 10 men away to Malmo on Thursday. Now they went away to Stuttgart and put in another really gritty performance. I feel like this podcast and probably just about every quarter of Bundesliga commentary has, has become a real you know, fount of praise for Union, but would you like to add a little? Yeah, I think, I mean, I would actually contradict that. I feel like every podcast I listen to, every article I, I read about Union, there's always this voice of caution where the journalist or the expert or the ex-professional or indeed someone who works at Union, you know, the, the coach or the squad player, Oliver Runet, who was also on Doppelpass today. They do like to pump the brakes. They do. And they always say, oh, you know, moment aufnahme, you know, like this is just a snap of the moment. And yet they're starting to really play like champions. This was a very Bayern Munich-like win where they, you know, weren't the better team. I wouldn't say they were the worst team, but in the, in the first half, Stuttgart was definitely dominant. They really didn't exert themselves too much and they got the job done. And when they scored the goal, they defended their own goal until the end. And, you know, it's just, they're such an uncomfortable team to play. And yeah, it's wild. I think every weekend we, we think this, their streak is going to break. And of course, last weekend they did suffer their first defeat this season against Frankfurt. But this was such a good win for them. And I mean, if we're going to get into it and call it, you know, a title race at the top, then, you know, let's talk about the other teams. Freiburg dropped points, mm -hmm. Dortmund dropped points, if you want to call it that. Bayern Munich dropped points. And so, you know, they're, they're doing pretty well up there. Yeah. Werder goddamn Bremen are sneaking into that conversation. We'll get to them in a minute. Let's speak for a moment about Stuttgart, because I think it is... Hmm. We saw a number of games this weekend where you saw a team from the upper reaches of the table against one from the lower reaches of the table that really didn't feel that way necessarily. Stuttgart could have, maybe should have gotten more out of this game than, you know, no points and seemed kind of snake bit right now. I mean, even in games in which they play well for long stretches, they tend not to get the goals that maybe they feel like they might have earned. When does the seat underneath Pellegrino Matarazzo start to get very hot? You know, I, I really hope it doesn't because this goes back to what we were saying earlier about really building a strong team over years. I think he's done very good work at Stuttgart. I actually think he's one of the best American coaches in the world and a future potential candidate to, to coach the U.S. national team, the men's team. Or indeed the women's team, you know, we never know. <laughs> but it's really hard because every time I watch Stuttgart play, they play well. I wouldn't, you know, they're not like exceptional, but, you know, they definitely play at a certain level. And they've signed good players. You know, they signed Girassi, who unfortunately, you know, was sent off with a yellow and a red today. But until then, was very involved in the game. Zagadou, this was his first start, had a really good game. And the fact that you can bring someone like Borna Sosa in from the bench or Chris Führich, they're both very, very good Bundesliga players. It just speaks to the level of quality there. So I understand the question about how secure Matarazzo might be because it's, you know, it's, it's hard when there's no culprit and they haven't won a game yet. And this is match day nine now and that's just passed. But I think, I think they'll get the points. I think they're, they really, far too low in the table and and you know where when a good time would be to start getting points next weekend against Bochum where they'll also be at home uh, and that's really a must win game and yes I think to answer your question if they lose that game I think Matarazzo can pack his bags but I really don't think they will lose that game I actually think 
that will be their first win uh, and that will be a turning point for them. All right. Let's talk about another team who have maybe uh, undersold themselves in terms of performances versus points. That is Hertha. They uh, looked surprisingly good uh, on Sunday against Freiburg in Berlin. Looked like they might be coming home with a win after evening things up through a first half penalty and then getting a Suat Serdar go-ahead goal midway through the second half. But uh, things were not to be. Hertha now still five games unbeaten, but only one point from this game against Freiburg after, you know, basically letting it slip away. Uh, a bad goalkeeping error from Oliver Christensen led to a Kevin Shada semi-deflected sort of seeing eye ground ball through a lot of legs in the penalty area. It's a bit of a broken record at this point, but is this a decent read that this is a, a team <laughs> who... <laughs> Outside of that first game against Union, where they were not in it, have basically been good enough to be in every single game since and should feel a little bad about only having eight points at this point. Matt, I can hear you smiling through the microphone. <laughs> yeah, they had a really good season and they're playing good football and the team seems to gel well with the new coach and, and follow his lead. And... Yeah, it's, there's really a lot of promise in the squad when the players that they do have perform. I mean, you only need to look at Dodi Lukabakio, who I remember when he had his breakout season in the Bundesliga with Fortuna Düsseldorf. He scored two against Bayern Munich and was kind of an overnight sensation. And he's really picking up steam this year. Um, he was everywhere in this game. And it's just, yeah, there's so much talent within Hertha's squad that I actually wouldn't be surprised if they end up a little higher than where they are right now, maybe, you know, 12th, 11th. And, you know, I didn't expect that before the season. I really thought that they would be a contender against relegation, very much based on, on their season last year. And, you know, everything that always goes wrong outside the stadium, you know, with Lars Windhorst, Freddy Bobic, you know, Hertha's just such a good scandal club. There's always some player going live and, and showing they're breaking COVID protocols or some higher up, you know, saying things he shouldn't in public or a coach about to be fired. So, and honestly, something I also noticed when I watched this game today is the atmosphere. I mean, the Olympia Stadion is a tough home turf because you've got the track separating the, the ranks from the players and, you have to, you know, you have to fill 80,000 seats, which is no easy task for, you know, a mid to low table side. But in this game, it was really, really loud. The, you know, there was a lot of singing, a lot of cheering. And it, it just seems like something might be, might be growing in Berlin and in that part of Berlin rather than just Kupenik. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you're right. Speaking of Freiburg, however, they have learned to sort of cruise through certain games, it seems. This was a game where I feel like they probably had the better of things in the early going, but I was a little surprised that Hertha were not able to put this game away considering how much they controlled the second half and they took advantage of certain, you know, I don't know, maybe Freiburg squad members who were not quite as energetic after a midweek exertion than they, they maybe would have been. But they got the job done. They have been perfect through, you know, three games in the Europa League. They are, you know, two points off the top in the Bundesliga and have scarcely played a bad game yet. I would feel pretty good about them even heading to the Allianz next weekend. Yeah, I'm actually excited for that game. And I think if they were hosting Bayern at home in Freiburg, you know, I think this would be an absolute cracker. I think the fact that they're playing in Munich makes it tough because I was actually in Munich last weekend for their uh, thrashing of Leverkusen. And, you know, if Bayern starts a game well at home, they, they often find momentum, pick up speed, and then kind of enter a rush of, of goal scoring. So I think it's, it's much harder to play Bayern away than to, you know, host Bayern in your own stadium. 
And actually, you know, having mentioned that, that game where they beat Leverkusen was their only win in the last six Bundesliga games. Now, isn't that crazy? Um, I, you know, when was the last time we were able to say that? Maybe under Kovac or something. But yeah, Freiburg's doing very well. They have, um, they're very solid at the back. They've only conceded eight goals. That's the second best defense in the league. Second just to Union Berlin, who've conceded six. And, you know, if they can be that compact and really bring that to Munich, then I think at the front, you know, anything's possible. They have some very, very gifted players in Doan, who's having a fantastic season. Chire, who pretty much fit in straight away. Um, Hula is now back from injury. And yeah, I mean, obviously, Grioric is having a fantastic year. So there's so much talent. Um, and, and, you know, Kevin Schade is back from injury. He had a really bad injury. Now he he's actually scored a goal um, off another substitute appearance. So who knows? I think if, if they manage to keep a clean sheet in Munich, then no, and score one goal. That that's all that needs to happen for them to win. Yep, yep. I'm going to be watching that one for sure. One that I didn't actually watch was this uh, week's Friday night fixture. That was Hoffenheim and Werder Bremen. It was a two-one win for Werder Bremen. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, they are now starting to creep into the upper reaches of the table. They are now in what fifth place, I believe. Mm-hmm. Is this for real, Marie? Is this is this for real that Werder Bremen? are dangerous enough. I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot about, you know, Nicholas Fulkrug and, to a lesser extent, Marvin Duksch. There's been a lot of good signs from this team. They have a penchant for late goals. They have a penchant for goals, period. They are, you know, basically, other than Bayern, outscoring everybody. Is this for real? Yeah. I mean, they're a very, very entertaining team to watch. And every time I watch their games, it, it's a lot of fun. There's so much power so much running, so much pace and energy. And I mean, I think I said this earlier, but I think that they're very much benefiting from being pretty much the same side that they were last year. And, you know, there's something to be said. Obviously, this is one tier up from the second Bundesliga, but Dukes and Völkrug, they kind of understand each other blindly and they've set up goals for each other, you know, time and time again. Weiser is performing better than he has in many years. Friedel is really um, finding his groove. So there you have two kind of Bayern misfits or rejects who have seemed to have found a really happy home. And yeah, they're having a very special season. And, you know, who who's to say that it's not a season, you know, that ends with them in the conference league spot? Um, I, think, I think they're allowed to dream a little bit um, because... They've performed really well against really strong teams. You know, they beat Gladbach 3-0, which is really exceptional. And yeah, I, I don't think you can talk about luck if you score 20 goals in nine games. And like you said, that's the second best goal-scoring team after Bayern Munich. So Werder Bremen, a promoted team, has scored more than, than Dortmund, Frankfurt, Union, Freiburg. That, that's really exceptional. Yeah. Let's talk about the rest of the matches from this weekend with a little bit more brevity. I think we've I think we've been battering on for some time now. Another interesting result, probably before we get to the last couple, which are are KG or draws, was not a KG draw. In fact, it was a, a game that basically turned on a dime in the last twenty minutes or so. Bochum three nil win at home over Eintracht Frankfurt. I. For my money, that's the weirdest result mm-hmm. of the weekend. It was not one that I foresaw. It was not one that I saw, considering I was switching between a couple of different games during that same time slot. Do you have a sort of a, a way to give me some archaeology of, of, of how this happened? Yeah, no, I don't. I, I mean, I do think it was a matter of time until they, they win a Bundesliga game. But doing it against very... You know, I think Frankfurt hadn't lost in five games or something and had just come in from an incredible game against Tottenham where they almost won against, you know, one of the most expensive teams in, in Europe or in England, One, you know, a shimmering club. So that was really surprising. But I think, you know, watching that game, 
they kind of deserved it. They worked very, very hard. They really built up their chances. Förster, Philip Förster had a game, you know, of his lifetime. He set up two goals and scored one. And it's it's a special stadium. I, I mean, everyone who's been there says that. And I think once they scored that first goal late in the game from a set piece, all hell broke loose and Frankfurt wasn't able to 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 cope. And then two more followed. So yeah, we'll we'll see if this gives them a bit of hope. They they gotta travel to Stuttgart next, which is very much you know, a bottom of the table kind of tip game, very much like, very much the opposite to Freiburg and Bayern. Next match day, I should add. And yeah, I think this was very much a triumph for Bochum. And it was very much them, you know, performing to their maximum potential rather than Frankfurt being terrible. Bochum really deserved this win. Yeah, they sure needed it because they were in, in, in real danger of just losing touch with uh, the rest of the table if they hadn't have gotten to win here. Okay, two more games. They're both, you know, as I mentioned earlier, kind of KG 1-1 draws. Obviously, every game has its own story to tell. But the first one was between Mainz 05 and Rosenbaumsport Leipzig. And the second one was between, I'd say, Augsburg and Feilfeld Wolfsburg. Any storylines surrounding any of those four teams sort of giving you any kind of a tickle right now? No, I, I mean, I, I will say I think Augsburg coped well in the absence of Andre Hahn and Mergen Berisha, mm-hmm. who were their two most outstanding attacking players of late. And of course, Berisha was out um, with a yellow-red and Hahn picked up an injury, but Vargas and Rex Bajai replaced them. I mean, it was impressive in a way to see the breadth that, that Augsburg has I very much thought that they would be battling relegation and, you know, now, you know, they're also unbeaten in four games now and three of those were wins. Mm-hmm. This was a very physical game, a lot of stops for fouls, a lot of cards, uh, not the most beautiful game, but no, I just wanted to mention that I think Augsburg did very well here to compensate for some key positions that had to be filled. All right. That is all for this edition of Talking Foosball Direct which is produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Really, really nice to have you back on, Marie. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And I have to say I enjoyed comparing the the looks of the different coaches in the Bundesliga on the sideline this weekend. There's always such a range from Jürgen Nagelsmann's extravagance with his jackets and, and bow ties and whatever he flashes and his sneakers, and now to the elegance of Xavi Alonso and the kind of, you know, neighbor next door taking out the trash that is the gem of Stefan Baumgartel. <laughs> so, yeah, it's great. You know, it's great that we're, we're lucky to have so many great characters on the sidelines in this league. Yeah, I think Xabi Alonso may never mind a 4-0 result. I think just his presence in uh, photographs and televisually is going to be a real, a real uh, addition to the Bundesliga. You can find Marie, of course, on Twitter at Marie Shubo. If you want to contact me, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman over there. Uh, Talking Foosball Extra will be coming up in just a couple of days, so check that out. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all. Thank you.